I'm Rob Freeman, president of Kane Brothers. During this unprecedented and disorienting time, the team at Kane Brothers is conducting weekly interviews with leaders from throughout the healthcare industry for this special edition Industry Insights series. Our goal is to provide you and your organization with a wide array of views on the multifaceted dimensions, challenges, and responses to COVID-19. Transcripts are available on the Kane Brothers website. Please share your feedback with me or any of your Kane Brothers contacts, and thanks for listening. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Matt Margulies, Managing Director at Kane Brothers and head of our firm's post-acute care and home health and hospice advisory practice. Our guest today for Kane Brothers interview series is the CEO of one of the largest home health care providers in the country. Since 2012, Steve Rogers has transformed Accent Care into one of the most innovative and diversified providers of home health, personal care, and hospice services across more than 175 locations in 15 states. Accent Care was one of the first companies to recognize the strategic and clinical importance of providing all three home care services and under Steve's tenure was a first mover in developing a winning home health strategy with managed care organizations. In addition, Accent Care is partnered in two of the largest post-acute joint ventures in the country with Baylor Scott and White Health in Dallas and UCLA Health System in Southern California. Steve and his company are not only on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis, but also at the intersection of our nation's healthcare delivery system, interacting with every constituency on the healthcare continuum during this pandemic. Hospitals, SNFs, physicians, patients, their families, and of course, Accent Care's own clinical workforce who are going into patients' homes on a daily basis. I cannot think of an executive who has a more comprehensive perspective on our healthcare system during the COVID-19 crisis than Steve Rogers. Steve, thank you for joining us, and I'm very excited to speak with you today. Thanks, Matt. Uh, happy to be here with you. Um, starting from the top, um, has there been any material disruption uh, in your branch and, and clinical staff's ability to provide care in the home uh, and the other settings uh, that you provide care in, the SNF and, and the assisted living facility? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the entire healthcare system has gone through a, a significant disruption, right, with the, with the COVID crisis uh, over the course of the last, you know, six weeks. And I think... Uh, uh, we're part of that system, and, you know, we have these partnerships with the hospitals and the others, and I think, you know, uh, rightfully so, as we've seen some of the changes in the systems towards the social distancing, as well as the preparation for the surge activities, uh, there's been a very different flow of patients and the way patients are moving uh, into the system and interacting with the system right now. Um, you know, if I just kind of ticked off in our acute care setting, uh, you know, we, we, we saw actually uh, coming into the middle of March um, increased activity out of acute care as they started discharging patients out of, the home, out, of the, out of the acute setting into the home to actually create capacity. And what's that resulted in right now is there's right now you have hospital systems that are essentially operating at about a 50% capacity level or so out there in the marketplace. But you've also seen the throughput of patients with this, especially the, uh, you know, the uh, elective uh, surgeries being canceled. Uh, you've seen the throughput of patients both through the system on the inpatient side as well as uh, generally the patients that might have been brought in typically through the ED uh, significantly drop off. So 
you know, the combination on the acute care side is as much as a 30% drop kind of in, in the business that you end up seeing coming out of acute during this time period. Um, you know, um, over on the assisted living side of the business and the skilled nursing, there's been a lot tighter lockdown. Once again, those facilities, the, 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 the assisted livings are the ones that, you know, they've, they've pretty much, you know, they, they pretty much kind of um, put a framework in place where it's, it's only essential personnel going in. And we've managed to maintain a lot of access on the hospice side, you know, because there's, you know, especially with patients that are in active dying processes, you've got to be able to be in the system there and, and assisting them. Um, but, you know, they've really kind of more of what I call the therapy and some of what I call um, um, less, um, less uh, needed or less um, kind of mandatory kind of home health services in the ALs have been kind of, you know, tapered down uh, significantly across the board. And then, uh, you know, in the SNF setting, this has gone, there's it's variation of activities, right? So on the SNF settings, you've seen this general, um, you saw, you, you've seen some discharging coming out of the SNFs, uh, you know, generally speaking. And then, uh, you know, and then we've, we've continued to have some access with the hospice. So, and then from our primary care standpoint, our physician standpoint, the biggest thing about the physicians out there in the marketplace is essentially finding them. Um, because as they've had throughput in their own offices, many of them are only working half days themselves or working virtually kind of out of their different places. And so their interactions with their patients have been very different too. So there's been some modest drop off kind of in, in the interactions on some of the physician services too. Although it does differ by the specialties, obviously with the orthopedics, they've fallen off a cliff. But, you know, more than needed practices like oncology, there's been a consistent flow of patients kind of moving through the system there. And in terms of your workforce, um, would you say on, um, on average they've been able to both stay healthy um, and have been willing, you know, to come to work, uh, put, their, put themselves at risk? Um, obviously, they're, you know, going across the threshold into patients' homes and, and into these facilities. Um, what has been the feedback from your, from your clinical workforce in that regard? The workforce issues are huge and, and incredibly significant in an environment like this. Um, you know, because the, the, these people aren't just clinicians, they're people that are going through all the same shocks that I think the country is generally going through. And, uh, you know, the, what I would say is, is what, what's been interesting is, is to watch the stages as this has kind of moved on. And, you know, part of this is, is the way we've kind of managed through it too. And there, and, and there has been some, geographic variation um, in the way that I've seen the, the workforces kind of react uh, to some of these situations. You know, but on the whole, I'd have to say that the clinicians have stepped up incredibly well to this. I mean, we as an organization have essentially put our communications on steroids. So uh, we did a number of things across the board. There are daily messages uh, going out six days a week to basically our workforce. We have an online, we have an application uh, that goes both on uh, iPhones and, and uh, uh, Android operating systems uh, that, that essentially pushes messages out uh, to our workforce, including I do a weekly video message. And one of the things that's been incredibly important is, is what we've talked about a lot is a call to purpose um, of why we're in this business and what we need to do. Uh, and a lot of that underneath that, to put your people on the front lines, they've got to have a combination of 
trust that they have the equipment they need, trust that they have the training that they need, and trust that they got leaderships that aren't going to leadership that isn't going to put them into harm's way. And so when you address those through your communication programs out there with them, you can tend to get them um, aligned around the mission. And I would say that we have put in place, we actually have dedicated COVID teams of clinicians uh, taking care of COVID patients out there today. Um, and we have put in place uh, monetary and other um, incentive and protection mechanisms for them. Um, but I would say what has really made the nurses uh, and therapists and the other clinicians kind of step into this has really been the call to purpose of recognizing that, you know, this is what they're in the business for. And so, you know, with that, we have gone through and we have had um, in our workforce, we've had, uh, you know, patients or not patients, nurses and clinicians positively diagnosed with uh, COVID, none seriously, none hospitalized um, so far. Um, and uh, we've put in, we've had uh, some over on the attendance side of the business too. These are all tracked. We track, um, we've been tracking both, uh, and we actually have a whole clinical process built around tracking quarantined patients, whether presumed or active quarantine for COVID, uh, <clears throat> so that we can monitor the return to work and the, and the status of our employees at any given time. In terms of yeah, the patients and their and their families, have you seen any pushback um, from either in you know from uh, in terms of allowing your clinical staff uh, to to enter the home? Um, uh, any you know fear around you know spreading the the virus to uh, to the family member or or to the patient in their home? Uh, yeah, no, we've seen it on both the uh, personal attendance side of the business as well as the home healthcare side of the business. I would say early into the crisis. Uh, on the home healthcare side of the business, there was a spike in missed visits. I think the spike in missed visits <clears throat> on the early stages of this, and, and there was also a spike in what I call uh, where we had valid referrals coming in, uh, where the, the patients um, were not accepting of the service or did not want the service. Um, I'd say uh, we once again developed communication protocols and campaigns to make sure that we could educate our patient and client workforce around essentially the sterilization procedures that we have to once again take down the fear factor. I think some of those misvisits were also our own system adapting to basically the, you know, how to deal with some modest pushback, I think, coming from the patients kind of over time. And so, you know, the misvisits spiked out probably about, uh, you know, two to three weeks ago. And over the course of the last several weeks, we've seen a precipitous drop. I think the other thing that's happened is we've been very persistent on patients that initially said that they didn't want service or were prohibiting us from coming into the home. You know, we call them. We call them multiple times a week to make sure they're okay, uh, to check in on them. Um, we also have, you know, like I said, both kind of refined both the sterile, the, the, how, how our sterilization procedures are and the protective procedures uh, that we put in place. But I think another piece that we've done is we talk to them about our telehealth program because we are uh, basically, especially with COVID patients, but non-COVID patients, uh, we've significantly increased our telehealth services and our ability to interact with them virtually both through, both through, uh, asynchronous communication applications that are HIPAA compliant, as well as, um, as well as more complex 
uh, Medtronics types devices that we have out there. And, you know, I think that's helped break down some of the barriers too. And then what about um, your workforce, um, you know, in the call center, in the back office, uh, what, uh, what programs have you put in place to, uh, to, to move to, you know, virtual office, working from home, um, those types of measures? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I think, you know, we've always had a disaster recovery plan, and part of the disaster recovery plan was built around moving to a virtual workplace and having staff being able to work out of the house, right, whether it was a tornado hit a service center or a hurricane or something like that. And I always doubted whether it would work, to tell you the truth. And I have been incredibly pleasantly surprised. Over the course of basically a week after we decided to go ahead and do it, we our IT organization systematically uh, worked through to make sure that all of our employees that were in their back office operations uh, basically had technology appropriately installed on their computers, had the soft phones appropriately installed on their computers, had headsets, uh, had appropriate internet connections at home. If they didn't, we got them uh, MiFi cards to take home with them. And essentially over the course of four days, we moved 700 people home um, and got them all home, got them working virtually. And uh, during that time period, we have seen um, zero drop in productivity whatsoever. And I will tell you the thing that happened too is, is there was a lot of noise of fear factor once again while they were still sitting in the offices. Um, and as soon as we moved them home, all that fear just dropped off. And so we actually do a, a call every day uh, checking on where our workforce status and what's going on and making sure that we had, uh, you know, that we had the right workforce in place to both continue to process our, our bills and get our bills out the door and get paid, as well as all the uh, centralized back office operations we have out of McKinney, Texas. I mean, one of the things that's different about us with Accent Care is we have 100% of our intake centralized uh, across our home healthcare platform. Uh, so if that goes down, that means we have no business coming in, right? So it was even that much more nerve wracking uh, during a time period like this, but we've seen absolutely no drop off. And in fact, I will tell you by having more of a centralized back office function in something like this, we have a greater pulse on what's going on. I get updates three times a day about how many referrals are coming in, what the admits are developing up like, um, that basically gives me essentially a sense of what's going on inside the business. It's a really interesting, you know, comment you just made. I know there's, a, there's differing views uh, on the right way to uh, to structure intake. You know, some of it obviously is uh, is a function of how the organization was built, and and it's also a, a function of um, you know viewpoint on on what the right um, um, the, the best way to structure intake. Um, do you think there'll be a, a greater um, a greater move towards centralizing intake at other key functions, you know, post this pandemic, as, as companies think about, you know, better ways to uh, to protect themselves in the future. Yeah, I can't talk for you know what some of my uh, for-profit public publicly traded competitors are going to do, but this has been an incredibly, uh, I think, helpful. A capability for us because it really does give you a, a really great handle on the business on going through times like this. There's risk, right? But I mean, I think what we've shown is we can mitigate that risk kind of, kind of coming through it. But we have 100% of our insurance authorization and verification, so we know what's going on on that and how the activities are coming in. It's been incredibly, I mean, think about Texas going through in Texas. Texas went live on RCD on March 1st. 
or April 30th or not March for, uh, uh, I mean, February 29th, one of the two. And, you know, you, you sit there and, you know, you had to, we had to manage through RCD at the same time period, um, which is all the pre-claim that CMS put in place at the same time period as we were kind of putting in this operations. And it just, it gives you a better sense on pulse on what's going on inside your business than trying to collect it out of, you know, 200 call points out there and kind of understanding kind of how the business is coming in and what's it looking like and where things are falling off on and everything else. And so I think it's just given us, you know, incredible visibility, I think, into kind of our ongoing operations and, and stability too, because we've seen where there are pressure points that we might want to push on a little bit more differently. We monitor all our portals are 100% centralized too. So the portals for the referrals coming in are through there. So we can kind of pretty much see what's, what are the activities coming in at, where there might be problems. Um, it would help us to immediately set up the COVID profiles out on all the portals for whether it's NaviHealth or all scripts so that people knew that we could accept the COVID patients instead of relying on each of our individual sites uh, to set up those profiles like that. So it just gives you, I think, a different level of visibility and capability to react to a situation like this. And, and have the managed care plans and the uh, Medicare intermediaries uh, been processing claims, um, you know, on the at the same pace as they have uh, or they were pre-COVID-19, or have there been a noticeable slowdown in uh, in their in their productivity? Uh, we have had no drop off on uh, once again cash and cash coming in the door and the claims getting processed. We did have one small health plan up in the Northeast that was problematic and their prior authorizations and were completely backlogged in their prior authorizations uh, through the process. And we sent them a pretty strong letter and, you know, to their credit, they adjusted uh, through their processes. So the big players, the Aetna's, the United, the Cigna, we haven't seen any drop off whatsoever. And the intermediaries too, the fiscal intermediaries, the Palmettos and the others have done a good job, I think, in maintaining their operations through this and the claims flows and the payment cash is still coming in the door. Um, switching gears, um, there, um, there obviously, you know, is a, um, is a vastly different response to COVID-19 state to state. Um, you're spread across 15 states in the country, you know, three of the biggest, New York, Texas, and California. Um, can you speak to uh, the differences in, in how some of these states, uh, particularly New York, Texas, and California have uh, reacted from a healthcare and, and policy perspective uh, specific to uh, to your business and to and to healthcare generally. Yeah, well, I think in some ways we were lucky in being out in California to start, you know, in a, in a large presence in California because it made us have to. They were the first on the line, right outside of Washington, that kind of got hit in this, and so it basically allowed us to quickly establish procedures. So. You know, I mean, there are these things that just set off your workforce, right? When they started putting in the shelter-in-place orders out there and the counties were kind of flying by on the shelter-in-place kind of orders that were kind of taking place there, you know, it was sending shockwaves through your employee base there. And so you had to kind of be able to, to, to react um, to some of that. And that allowed us, because we got it early on, quickly established the procedures that we've cascaded across the country so that we were ahead by the time that it got to New York and Texas and actually Mississippi is another big, very big state of ours. What I'd see in some of the differences I'd see, there are some cultural differences. 
I think in the way that, that I think workforces and populations kind of manage through some of this. And then even the systems and the way I've seen some of the systems uh, kind of manage through some of this. And so, you know, I'll use an example like UCLA and UCLA Health, as well as UC San Diego, two of our joint venture partners, are used to being dealing in a, in a situation where they actually um, have uh, don't have enough capacity, you know, because California is a state where it's too expensive to build and they have no ability to actually build more beds, right? So they're constantly in a state of essentially overcapacity and actually run it, I think, over 100%. And so because of that, they've got more refined procedures on how to manage overflow. And so it was for them kind of putting those procedures on steroids on how they use dorms, how they use hotels, how they do things, and even to the extent of how they manage it from, they, they, they readily already know how to use personal attendance in those spaces, how to contract for additional labor in those spaces and some things like that. So I think California, because of that, and some of the systems because of that, have a little, had a little bit, whereas some of our Texas systems <clears throat> who've actually got, you know, over capacity, um, basically, they basically, you know, they don't, they, they haven't had to use these alternative settings um, to be able to manage overflows of patients or get ready for a surge, right? And so I think, um, I think that has kind of, that, that was some of the differences that we saw. I'd say there's differences in workforces. You know, a, a California workforce um, tends to be, you know, the, the, the labor market in California, especially around the clinicians, is much more um, uh, uh, mobile. Uh, and um, I would say that, uh, I would say, I don't want to call them, they are very committed clinicians, but I'd say they're kind of, they're, they're almost like independent contractors in the way that they move around it. Whereas you get in your, kind of some of your Texas and your uh, Mississippi type marketplaces, these are people that are embedded in the organization and have been in the organization. So the way you manage those workforces I think is slightly different and and kind of how you interact with them and work with them and incentivize them kind of to 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 uh, essentially be able to kind of manage through these difficult situations like this. I think um New York is you know you just look at the whole New York and the whole northeast I mean we're both up in New York and Massachusetts through this. I will tell you I'm um very proud of the teams that we have in place there. Uh they're incredibly resilient people. Uh, that have actually stepped in and, and faced into this uh, through some, you know, that they, between the combinations of patients, you know, that have died um, on us on service out in the New York marketplaces, and oftentimes like even up in Massachusetts, we'll have patients that will be kind of referred into us and they'll die before we even get them into the home uh, and back into the home on this. Um, the amount of workforce that they've had to manage through on who have been out, um, you know, at any given day, um, all the moving variables of kind of managing through an incredibly difficult situation. I'm very proud of the way that they've continued to not only the back office staff, but the, the personal attendance taking care of these people. You know, I would say that, you know, if you look at like in, you know, the, the horrific situation in New York, um, we've only dropped off about 10% of our hours there. People are still showing up. People are still getting out to these patients. Uh, people are taking care of them and we're giving them the PPE they need to get out and, and basically banish these patients at the home. And, you know, incredibly resilient. And I call it, they're incredibly resilient up in Massachusetts too. I've been very proud of the way they faced into it. Um, and they face into it in different ways. You know, you get down in Mississippi and some of the Texas marketplaces, 
there's a much more um, metaphysical, religious kind of undertaking in the way that they kind of face into these. And I'd say, you know, the New Yorks and the Massachusetts kind of cultural differences is they're just tough, right? And so it's just a very different in the way that the populations are managing through this and the way you got to work with your workforce to basically uh, uh, motivate them. You mentioned um, at the beginning of your comments on this question, um, the way that the uh, the California hospitals are, are working and dealing with uh, a lack of capacity. Um, as a joint venture partner in Southern California, um, have you had, you know, a higher level of interaction with your hospital partner um, and helping them think through post-acute discharge strategies and, and freeing up capacity? Um, or has it been business as usual in that regard with the hospitals? No, we're very engaged. So we basically, so it kind of gets in a combination of our model and then these, these partnerships in and of themselves. So if you look actually at all our joint venture and heavy partnerships, um, there's a, there, and there's slight differences in each one of them, but we're, we're closely linked with them on managing their capacity. Um, and, you know, and so they've been very transparent with us on when they expect the surge to happen. We literally have daily calls. We have daily calls with UCLA Health, UC San Diego, Asante, Stewart. Uh, each of these have their daily calls where they're going through um, basically what they're expecting, what they're looking at, how much they plan on, what they, what they see is their discharges coming up, what they need from us from a capacity standpoint. And then, you know, different ones are working with us on different programs. I mean, out in UCLA Health, we brought in our private pay personal attendant business because once again, as they move these into alternative settings, they have a need for more 24-hour attendant type services in there. We're one of the only ones in California that could bring up a service like that because of our heavy clinical background and our home health and our access to PPE for a, a private pay attendant population, right? And so we were able to quickly kind of train our attendants on appropriate uh, uh, sterilization and uh, kind of protective procedures kind of around this, get them the equipment that they need, and, you know, we're ready to play on that. Uh, with Baylor, Scott, and White, um, we've actually instituted an um, uh, emergency department, to, uh, basically a uh, 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 kind of a hospital at home program um, that we've been able to kind of, so that certain conditions, once again, instead of these patients ending up back on their floors, we've been able to work with them. So we're bringing them up both in their um, downtown Baylor University Medical Center Hospital, we're bringing up this uh, diversion program, as well as down in their Austin Marketplace, we're bringing up a diversion program. So we're very linked at the hip uh, with all of our joint venture partners uh, across the board and in, in different programs in each one of these different places. And I think that does give us, and the other thing we're seeing on this, quite frankly, too, is, is you know, this is becoming, I think, a distinguishing opportunity for what I'd call more tier one home healthcare companies, because once again, we have set up very rigorous procedures and protocols and how to be able to appropriately take these patients out of the systems, get them stabilized in home, and be able to give them a level and type of service that I think give the systems confidence that we can kind of maintain these. And there's only a few of us that can do this. Then a lot of the mom and pop and even smaller regional home healthcare companies either don't have access to the PPE, don't have the training programs, um, or the oversight and the clinical supervision that they need to be able to kind of take on these patients. And so we're getting brought back into hospital systems and marketplaces now 
that basically we've had trouble being in before because you know they need a they need a partner at the table to be able to kind of work with them uh, as the surge comes through their system to stabilize these populations and so it's been a I think an advantage and for um, more of us tier one home healthcare clinical uh, organizations and I think some of uh, the more regional and mom and pop providers out there. As you know, as the health systems prepare for a a new normal, um, you know, we, we've been told by the government that the you know these types of pandemics uh, may continue in greater frequency. You know, the COVID nineteen you know may uh, may slow down and then speed up again. Do you think the hospitals that aren't partnered with home health companies uh, are going to be increasingly um, thinking or rethinking their post-acute strategy, um, given the successes that you and some of your peers are having with your joint ventures? And do you expect to see a greater uh, volume of potential joint venture interest and activity uh, in the short term uh, with hospitals like Baylor, Scott & White, UCLA, San Diego, et cetera? I think what the systems have seen is the complete, one of the things that's been a consistency and, you know, you just have to look at the New York Times this weekend, as well as the Wall Street Journal, is a complete failure of the skilled nursing system, facility system. I mean, the system has been unable to staff appropriately. They've ended up um, not having appropriate protective procedures and how they kind of manage their patients across the board on it. And so, obviously, this gen has generated an incredible amount of high fatality rates inside of uh, the skilled nursing facilities during this crisis. And I think because because of a combination of that, uh, and then over on the other side, because I think um, some of us uh, in the industry have been able to actually be an incredibly consistent partner for these people. I think people are. I think I think these systems are going to step back and kind of recognize more than ever the value of actually being able to better manage throughput within their systems of having a reliable partner out there, and whether that ends up into joint ventures or tighter preferred partner relationships, I think they will step back at the end of this and say that this has got to, you know, this has got to be kind of addressed. And I think, I think when it kind of comes around, I think is, you know, Matt, that, you know, typically the hospitals have had a very difficult time themselves being able to run these businesses because they're very different uh, than managing a facility. So I think there is the opportunity to kind of push them towards greater joint venture partnerships over time. Um, and then, you know, in terms of, um, you know, how the crisis has impacted your strategic growth initiatives, uh, are you still evaluating and executing on M&A partnerships and, and de novo opportunities, uh, even through, you know, all of this crisis? Well, we have one active one uh, that we continue to work through that we're excited to get done. It slowed it down a little bit um, as we've kind of had to, had to manage through that, but we are still working that. I think. Uh, you know, the, we haven't talked about it too much, but hospice has been incredibly resilient through this. In fact, our hospice has grown through this entire crisis. And so, um, you know, we're continuing to move ahead on some regional hospice plays that are out there uh, and are excited about some other potential larger hospice plays that are coming out to the marketplace kind of around that. And then, uh, you know, we've continued to kind of uh, work through some other joint venture kind of opportunities that we've had there. So I think. It's slowed it down some, but here's what I think is going on. I think, you know, we're all kind of 
moving into the new normal now, and as we're moving into this new normal that is going to go on for better, you know, I will tell you just over the course of the last, you know, 10 days within our own organization, you know, we're just like, guys, it's time to get back to work. I mean, everybody, we're in this setting, but we've still got to execute on these businesses. And, you know, we actually in our own business plan expect to show year-over-year growth, both top line and bottom line growth inside this business. It won't be quite to the plan that we had set out before, but we still think we can produce that kind of growth. So, you know, I think uh, all the strategic stuff has been slowed down a little bit, but I think you'll start to see it. I think pick up as we kind of get into this new normal in the summer months and people, uh, you know, I think I actually expect the summer months to be fairly busy because everybody's going to be ready to get back to work. And I don't know if we're all going to be back in the office or not, but I think, you know, we all got to make, we all got to move these businesses ahead. You guys as bankers, you got to move your deals ahead. Things got to kind of, you know, kind of keep going on some level. And I think, You'll start to see some uh, some of the bigger plays potentially pop back up out there. So um, we're hopeful because um, you know we're at the uh, early end of a relationship with Advent, and we have strong desires to kind of uh, significantly uh, grow the top line and the bottom line of the business, both through M&A joint ventures and the organic growth engines we got in the company. And then last question, Steve. Um, you know, do you think that um, the government becomes more home health and hospice friendly from a regulatory and reimbursement standpoint, given how well, you know, your business uh, and businesses like yours have fared over the last, you know, several weeks, uh, particularly in light of how, uh, how much a failure the, the SNF industry has been, like you mentioned earlier, um, and the relief valve that you've been uh, providing, you know, to the the health systems. So obviously you don't have a crystal ball, um, but do you think that the government, the regulators and the legislators uh, see that eventually and, uh, and become, you know, more friendly to your industry or, or no? You know, I would hope so. I think they're probably, you know, we're unfortunately as, a, as an industry, we're kind of like sometimes get buried in all these, right. And, and the general kind of, it's typically like when things aren't going well, you get, you get it. I think actually what we've managed to do, and I think once again, I think, you know, we've got, I think the lobbying and the uh, partnership, both the partnership as well as NAC have done a much better job in recent years and continuing to push our agenda out there. Uh, they managed to get some wins in this. I think uh, having uh, nurse practitioners be able to actually now actively manage and sign off on home healthcare cases uh, was a big win for the industry. And I think we'll actually open up the business some. I think this whole thing around telehealth is coming. And I think that uh, without kind of getting into a lot of details, we've been very big advocates and pushers that once CMS was in, uh, kind of moving down with getting uh, some of the insurance companies, um, we're fairly confident that one of the largest insurers is going to actually pay for telehealth services and home health care. And I think with that, that will put some pressure back on CMS that would say that's pretty legitimate because I think once this one does it, I think we'll have probably two or three others do it. Uh, and I think we can show the efficacy of uh, telehealth and actually driving an efficient, effective home health uh, episode. I think that would be a big win for us. I think the government, you know, out of this, we'll have to see, you know, the rate pressure thing, you know, we have an obligation as an industry to be good stewards of the money that we end up getting. And I think there's opportunities for it continuing to actually do a better job with the money we're getting and be more efficient and effective 
uh, with it. And so I think there's some opportunities for us. I, I, I'll be happy if CMS just continues to give us cost of living increases, you know, the normal kind of uh, for, for the nurses' salaries in there that we can kind of push along while we drive some efficiencies at it. So I wouldn't expect any other windfall coming out of them. Great. Uh, Steve, uh, I really appreciate the time. This was uh, in, fantastic and, and, and really insightful. And uh, I know you're running around in, in a thousand different directions, but uh, thank you very much for making the time for us. Yeah, happy to do it, Matt.